I think it would be safe to say that one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life for many believers is how to relate to those who don't know the Lord. Sadly, some Christians don't give any thought to the matter because other things in life are more important to them. So they just go along in life and don't even think about their opportunities to influence or impact others for Christ. Hopefully, that's not the majority. Hopefully, most Christians want their lives to count for Christ. But even when that is the case, it's not easy. We want our lives to make a difference, and we want to make an impact, but we don't always know how to do it. It's not uncommon for us to err on one side or the other. What I mean is, sometimes we have the tendency to come on so strong with people that we unnecessarily alienate them. And sometimes we don't say anything when the opportunity is there. So it's something that we need to contemplate and pray about and consider. Thankfully, there are passages of Scripture that address the subject, and our text this morning is one of those passages. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 3, over near the end of the New Testament, as we continue to work our way through this powerful letter of God's Word. Our text this morning will consist of verses 13 through 17. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. As you will see, as we work our way through these verses, Peter's words here in this paragraph are very, very practical. He had lived a great deal of life by this point, and he had shepherded many people through a lot of life's experiences. To use an expression from our day, he had seen it all. He knew the issues that Christians face. He knew the questions Christians have, and he knew how the Lord wants his people to live. All of that is behind this brief paragraph we just read. This, as I said, is a very, very practical section of Peter's letter telling us how to relate to unbelievers, how to relate to unbelievers who would revile us, resist us, or those who would just be curious about us and ask why we do what we do or why we believe what we believe. So if you've ever wrestled through those issues, and I'm sure many of you have, you will find this section extremely helpful. So let's see what Peter had to say as he penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, he begins by saying, And who is he 
who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. Here, Peter is stating a general principle. It is not a statement without exception, because followers of good are mistreated sometimes, but this is a general truism. Generally speaking, people in society don't mistreat those who go around doing good in life. People who are kind and caring and thoughtful and benevolent toward others usually aren't targeted for mistreatment. That's the point Peter is making here in verse 13. So he is reminding us that one of the best ways to live a quiet and peaceable life, to borrow from the Apostle Paul's words, a life without being hassled or harmed, is to live a life of good deeds. In Acts 10.38, when Peter was presenting the gospel to the household of Cornelius, he described Jesus by saying this, He went about doing good. Don't you love that phrase? Jesus went about doing good. He just went around doing good. That's what Jesus was known for. And that's what we as his followers should be known for in life. That should not be the exceptional Christian. That should not be the rare Christian. It should be the normal Christian. And if that's what we are known for in life, the chances are we won't be the object of hurtful actions. However, there are exceptions, as you well know. No one did more good than Jesus, but ultimately he was murdered. So there are exceptions. Peter certainly understood that. And that's why he adds the next verse. He says in verse 14, But, but, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. In the first part of this verse, where Peter says, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed, it is obvious that Peter is reiterating what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount had such a profound impact on Peter's life and in his mind and in his thinking and in his heart that elements of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount find their way into this letter frequently. Let me show you where Peter drew this statement from here in verse 14. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 to see this. Matthew chapter 5. The wording will sound familiar to you because Peter's wording is very similar to Jesus' statement here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we think of the subject of persecution, my guess is that we usually think of Christians being persecuted by a secular government or a communistic government, atheistic government. And certainly, many Christians have experienced and do experience that kind of persecution. But we need to remember that the persecution that Jesus and the apostles experienced came from religious people. Many believers do not realize this fact or who do not think about the implications of this. 
The persecution that Jesus and the apostles experienced came from religious people and the religious establishment. The reason I mention this is because most of the harassment, most of the persecution we face today here in the U.S. is not from the secular government, although that may come in the future, certainly could come. But most of the harassment and or persecution that we face is from religious people and the religious establishment. Think about that for a moment. Think about the irony of it. If you take the stand that the Bible is the authoritative and only word of God, if you take the stand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all religions don't lead to heaven, The biggest outcry against you is from religious people and the religious establishment. Sometimes you will be resisted by secular sources, but more often than not, the resistance comes from religious people or religious groups. If you want to invite a fight, and I'm not suggesting that you should want to invite a fight, but just for the sake of this point, if you want to invite a fight, then boldly proclaim that salvation doesn't come by baptism, by confirmation, by church attendance, by church membership, by giving money to the church, by partaking in communion, or by keeping the Ten Commandments. It doesn't come by living in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount, by giving to charity, by believing in God, by being a good neighbor, by living a respectable life, or by being involved in community services. Salvation doesn't come by being born as a covenant child. It doesn't come by walking down an aisle, or by raising your hand in a service, or being baptized as a baby. It doesn't come through Mary or the saints or the sacraments or confession to a priest. The Word of God is our authority on this and all matters. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Beloved, that is a controversial message. Extremely controversial in our day and age. That message invites an angry response. And that angry response is often from religious people, and religious groups. And you could broaden the message to say that salvation is not found in Islam, it's not found in Buddhism, Hinduism, Spiritism, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, the Way International, the Jehovah's Witness religion, or in New Age religion. Salvation is not in the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, or the Presbyterian Church. Salvation is not in any church. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now do you see why I say that that most of the resistance and or persecution that we will face today in 21st century America will not be from secular sources, but from religious sources. Our message certainly is not very popular with the secular world, but frankly, Much of the secular world simply ignores our message. It's not even interesting. They don't care what we say. We're considered fringe or extremists or bizarre. But the religious establishment and religious people get worked up when you take a firm stand on the stance that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Knowing this would be the case for his followers, 
Jesus provides us with some words of encouragement here in verse 10 of Matthew 5 when he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's very important that we see the phrase, for righteousness' sake. The reason why that is important is because sometimes Christians experience what they assume to be persecution when in reality it is simply the consequences of their own actions. For instance, if we refuse to pay our taxes, which God repeatedly says we should do, and the government prosecutes us, we have no right to claim that we are being persecuted because we are Christians. That's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is the natural consequence of our own improper actions. If we don't abide by the appropriate rules and regulations of society, with the result that we experience some undesirable consequences, we have no right to claim that we are being persecuted because of our commitment to Christ. That is not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is the natural consequence of our own improper actions. I want to stress this point because many a Christian or Christian organization has given the Lord a bad name by refusing to comply with acceptable stipulations, maybe not desirable, but acceptable stipulations in society, and then claim that the reason why they are experiencing consequences is because they are being picked on for being Christian. Beloved, don't do that to the Lord's name and the Lord's reputation. If we are experiencing persecution, if we are experiencing harassment of some kind, we better make sure that it is for righteousness' sake and not for something that is our own doing. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not blessed are those who receive the consequences of their own willful choice not to comply with acceptable stipulations of society. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not blessed are those who are badgered because of their political position or because of their commitment to a certain cause or because of their tendency to be overzealous, or because of their offensive personality, or because of their self-righteousness. That misses the point of the verse. Let me illustrate this another way. Let's say you're a student at Montana State University who doesn't apply himself and study well. Now, obviously, you shouldn't be that kind of student. But if you're a student who doesn't apply himself and study well, and your teacher gives you an F or a D in the class, don't hide behind the excuse, well, it's just because I'm a Christian that the teacher gave me the poor grade. No, it isn't. It's because you wouldn't apply yourself and study. If you are an employee who shows up late to work all the time, and when you are there, you do a half job, and the boss ends up firing you, don't say it's because you're a Christian that you were fired. No, it isn't. It's because you weren't responsible and you didn't take your responsibility seriously to give your best to the task. The Apostle Peter made this same point when in 1 Peter 2.20 he said, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? 
But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Peter fully understood the possibility that a Christian could not do what he should do and then suffer the consequences and blame that on his Christianity. So again, he addressed it in 1 Peter 4.15. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody, or meddler in other people's matters. If you're going to suffer, make sure you're not suffering for those kinds of reasons. You see, sometimes we experience the negative consequences of our own offenses or our own misdeeds. That is not, please hear me, that is not suffering for righteousness' sake. Jesus is talking about suffering for righteousness' sake here in Matthew 5.10. There is something especially commendable before God if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake or for being like Jesus. We should see ourselves as blessed, Jesus said. In fact, we should be happy about that. Needless to say, that takes a radical paradigm shift in our minds and in our hearts. It is not natural to be happy when you are punished or persecuted for doing the right thing. So what can enable, can enable us to have such a radical paradigm shift? Jesus tells us here in verse 10 of Matthew 5, in his last phrase, what can enable us to have such a radical paradigm shift when we remember that ours is the kingdom of heaven? Beloved, absolutely nothing compares with the value and the reality that ours is the kingdom of heaven if we belong to Christ. Now, I acknowledge that it is easy to say that, and difficult at times to embrace that reality. But that is what we need to grab hold of in life. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Everything, absolutely everything, pales in comparison to the glory that shall be revealed in us in the eternal kingdom of God. So we must, we have to, latch on to that reality. When Jesus sent out the 70 on their short-term mission, You remember this story from Luke's gospel? They came back rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them. Jesus responded by saying this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the demons, the spirits, are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Beloved, that's what really matters. That's what matters most. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Our names are written in heaven. The truth of that reality is what can enable us to be happy and rejoice during times when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And just in case we think we misheard Jesus when he said, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He reiterates that statement again in the next verse. In verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. This is a very interesting statement by our Lord on the subject of persecution because it shows us that persecution can actually take many different forms. When we hear the word persecution, we probably think of Christians being beaten or thrown in jail, prison, or being martyred. Certainly, persecution takes those forms. But according to this verse, persecution can also take the form of being reviled or having people say all kinds of evil against you falsely. In other words, persecution can be physical attacks. Or it can be verbal attacks. Or it can be attacks on your reputation. Or attacks on your character. I think it would be safe to say that most of the persecution we experience here in America is in one of those last two categories. The persecution we experience here is most often verbal attacks or attacks against our character or attacks against our reputation. For example, back in 1999, a man here in the community was implying or insinuating to others that I had squandered or pilfered thousands and thousands of dollars that had come in for our building project. Never mind that the accusation was absurd and completely baseless. He wanted to do whatever he could to attack my reputation and plant doubts in people's minds about my character. According to Jesus' words here in verse 11... That is also persecution. Persecution is anything done to us or against us because of our love for Christ, our stand for Christ, our service for Christ, and our representing of Christ. And when that happens, Jesus said we should see ourselves as blessed. Now, I don't think I would be inaccurate to say that when those kinds of things are happening to us, we don't see ourselves as blessed. Instead, we think thoughts such as, oh no, where is this going to lead? Why me, Lord? Why is this happening to me? When is this going to end? Those are the kinds of thoughts that race through our minds. We don't say to ourselves, how blessed I am to be going through this ordeal right now. But that's how we ought to think. Not only should we think that way inwardly, We ought to rejoice outwardly or externally. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not only is ours the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said at the end of verse 10, not only do we get to be there, according to this verse, we will be greatly rewarded if we have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is hard to imagine. Yet that is exactly what Jesus is promising here. In Luke 6, and 23, he said, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, I'm sure you've had that happen. You're sort of excluded from the circle, from the, from the, the group, because you're, you're different. You, you, 
you don't go along with what everyone goes along with? Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Let me confess something to you. I have never done that. Never. When I have known of people who have hated me and excluded me and reviled me and cast out my name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, I did not leap for joy. You know why? My perspective wasn't right. I was totally horizontal in my thinking. Oh no, where is this going to lead? Why me, Lord? Why is this happening to me? When is this going to end? That was the wrong response. Isn't Jesus teaching radical? His standards and his expectations of us and his exhortations to us are radical. And this teaching of our Lord burned its way into Peter's mind. It riveted itself into Peter's heart. So when he sits down to write his own letter to the people for whom he was responsible to shepherd, he reiterates it to them. Now let's go back there to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter did not elaborate as much as Jesus did there in the Sermon on the Mount, but he summarized what Jesus taught when in verse 14 he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Peter not only stated that we are blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake, he also exhorted us to not be afraid. At the end of verse 14, he says, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. That statement comes out of Isaiah 8.12. It's a quote from Hebrew Scripture, and it's probably indicated in your translation with either words that are in quotations or indented, or somehow the translators show that this is a quote out of Hebrew Scripture, and Peter quotes it here to reinforce what he is saying. Don't be afraid, don't be troubled, but rather see that you are blessed when this kind of thing happens to you. By the way, Peter didn't just teach this stuff. He lived it. In Acts 5, Peter and the other apostles were beaten for talking about Jesus. And Dr. Luke tells us in Acts 5.41, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Peter rejoiced when he was persecuted for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he practiced what he preached. He didn't just tell others to do what he refused to do. He was consistent. And his game plan is set forth in the next verse. Verse 15. He says, but sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The opening line of this verse in the King James Version and the New King James Version says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And most other English translations say sanctify or set apart Christ as 
Lord. Whichever way your version reads, the point is the same. The Lord should have first place in our lives. That's what this phrase is saying. He should be preeminent. He should be first. We shouldn't see the Lord as a part of our lives. We should see Him as the center of our lives. That's the right way to live life as a believer. Everything we do in life should be done with Him in mind. Him as the focus. Our jobs, our schoolwork, our activities, our relationships should be carried out in a way that pleases Him and honors Him. After all, if we bear His name as Christians, then we represent Him. And if we live our lives in that manner, that is, representing Him, honoring Him, pleasing Him, you can guarantee, beloved, that others around us will notice the difference. They will notice. And if we live our lives in that manner, and others notice, it's going to raise questions in their their minds. You see, the platform from which we speak is the platform of a changed life, a different life. Hein, the German philosopher, said, show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your Redeemer. I've never forgotten that because I think that's fair. Show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your Redeemer. And if our lives are lived with Christ as Lord, then people will see a difference and there will be some who are curious enough to ask us about it. That is why Peter's next phrase is, and always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter is telling us that it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. We need to be ready to give an answer. So let me ask you, can you do that? If you're a Christian, if you're here this morning, you're a a Christian, a child of God, are you able as a Christian to articulate what you believe in a humble, thoughtful, reasonable way? That's a huge responsibility for each of us. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be able to answer every question and every uh, objection an unbeliever may set forth, but we do need to be able to articulate what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And when we do, we must do so with the right kind of attitude. That's the next phrase which says, with Meekness and fear, in in my translation, the New King James Version, with meekness and fear. But in the previous verse, Peter told us, or just previously, Peter told us not to fear. Therefore, it is best to translate this word reverence or respect. When we give answers to unbelievers, we are to do so with gentleness and respect. It doesn't do any good to badger people with the truth. It doesn't do any good to browbeat people with the truth, beat them down, club them. That doesn't win anyone. We give our answers with gentleness and respect. Our attitude is just as important as our answer, maybe more important. We need to answer the right way, and we need to live the right way, which is what Peter emphasizes in the next verse. He says in verse 16, having a good conscience... That when they defame you as evildoers, 
those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. This is such an important statement because it reminds us that no matter how well we answer unbelievers who inquire of us or who ask, it, it, it reminds us that no matter how properly we live, people still may falsely accuse us. I'm sure many of you have had that kind of grievous and painful experience, as have I. It can come from co-workers. It can come from teammates. It can come from classmates. It can come from neighbors, even from family members. You see, there are people who are threatened by your love for Christ. Even if you're not overzealous and you you don't pin them to the wall or anything like that, just by being who you are, just by loving Christ, and they know you love Christ, there are people who are threatened by that. Or they're angry at you because of your devotion to God's Word. And their response is to throw out accusations and slander you. They throw as much mud as they can conjure up, hoping that some of it will stick. Therefore, it is very important that we make sure that we are living the way the Lord wants us to be living so that, Peter tells us two reasons here. Number one, so we can have a good conscience in the face of false accusations. That's very important. Because if you've ever walked through this, and I know many of you have, you know how, how it can eat at you and, and it, can, it can debilitate you. And it can paralyze you. Because even though you haven't done anything wrong, to be falsely accused and said that you're evil and all of that, that weighs on a Christian, especially a Christian who has a sensitive conscience and has a sensitivity to the Lord who doesn't want to be doing things wrong in life. So Peter says it's very important that we live the way the Lord wants us to live so we can have a good conscience in the face of uh, of false accusations and two so that it may cause the person to be ashamed for making baseless accusations. It's not that we want the person to be ashamed so that somehow we win or so that we look good. That's that's not the motivation at all. Our humble desire and prayer ought to be that the person who makes such accusations, who throws out such mud and dirt, will see the baseless nature of his or her accusations and might even turn to the Lord. But obviously there are no guarantees in a situation like this. Peter's not giving us a a promise, a guarantee that this will happen if we have a good conscience and we respond properly. There are no guarantees that a person will see or admit that his accusations are baseless, which is why we need to have a good conscience. And there are no guarantees that if he does admit his accusations are baseless, that he will go the, the step further and turn to the Lord. The fact is that there are times when we as God's people will just have to endure such unjust situations. So Peter closes this practical paragraph with the next verse. He says in verse 17, For it is better, here's his summary of this, this little paragraph of his letter, For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is a critical reminder to us to make sure, again, that if we are treated wrongly, it is not because we are doing something wrong. As I said earlier in the message, it is a sad fact that there are times when Christians suffer consequences 
of their own foolish decisions or their own wrong actions or their own irresponsible behavior. And what's even sadder is when Christians experience those consequences, but they assume wrongly that they are innocent and it's all because of their Christianity. Beloved, this is where we need to be so careful. And this is where we need to be so honest in our assessment, objective in our evaluation. We should never suffer for our own missteps and pass it off as suffering for Christ. Let me say that again. We should never suffer the consequences of our own missteps and call that suffering for Christ. If we suffer for doing good, then then that is suffering for Christ or suffering for righteousness' sake. That is what is commendable. That is what is noble. It's interesting that Peter includes the phrase, did you notice that here in verse 17? If it is the will of God. He could have left that phrase out because the sentence makes good sense. For it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That makes sense. In fact, maybe it's even clearer. But Peter was compelled to put this phrase in there. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You mean that there may be times when it is God's will that we suffer? Yes. Why would it be God's will for us to suffer for doing good? I could mention some possible legitimate reasons. I could talk to you about how suffering refines our character. and Suffering provides an an opportunity for us to be a witness and a testimony. Those are all legitimate reasons. But maybe the best answer is this. I don't know. I I don't know why God does what he does. I don't know why God allows what he allows. I don't have access to the innermost recesses of divine reasoning. But I do know what Jesus did when he suffered, and it was the will of God. Chapter 2, verse 23 of this letter says, He committed himself to him who judges righteously. He entrusted himself to the righteous judge of the universe. And beloved, that's what we must do if it is the will of God for us to suffer for doing good. Can you see why I said this this brief paragraph is so very practical? This game plan for life that Peter sets out here gives such helpful instruction to us for how to live life. But, as you've seen, it's not easy. It's not easy to live life this way. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But this is the way we're called to live. Not live naturally. Live supernaturally. For Christ and by His strength. Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head in closing this morning, I encourage you to take just a couple minutes to reflect upon what you have seen and heard from God's Word this morning. Think about it. Think about how it relates to your life and your choices and where you're at in life. 
in a crowd this size, the diversity is really quite remarkable. Some people are going through this type of thing in life, others that type of thing, and there's, oh, certainly some overlap and commonality among us, but quite a bit of diversity. So there's no way I, I could think of uh, all of the potential or possible applications from this passage to each and every person here. But you can do that. You can think about the truth that you have heard from God's Word and what God says, and then now understanding that truth, say, okay, Lord, now how do you want me to apply this in my life, in my circumstances right now, in my situation? What should my response be to your truth, to your Word? And if you're here today without a relationship to Jesus Christ, you've never humbled yourself before Him and confessed your sinfulness and called out to him for mercy, grace, and forgiveness, then that is the response you need to have. That's the first and proper response, is you need to humble yourself before God and in simple childlike faith receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let go of whatever is a hindrance or whatever is holding you back. Surrender your life to Christ. Then you can begin to live the way this section of 1 Peter describes but only then. So however the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, make sure that you don't leave here the same as when you came. But let's make sure we're changed by this radical, radical truth found in God's Word. Father, the more we expose ourselves to your Word, the more we are amazed at just how radical it is. It it cuts cross-grain to so much of our natural thinking, so much of our natural behavior, our natural responses in life. And that's why, as the writer Hebrew said, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing deep to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If we will lay our hearts before the piercing nature of your word, you always have something to say to us. And as we hear it, may we hear it in the way that James uh, exhorted when he said, don't be merely hearers of the word, but doers. If you're only a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. So protect us, deliver us from the deceitfulness of merely hearing and not doing. Show us where we need to Respond to what we have heard this morning. Show us where we need to change, what we need to address in our lives to follow Christ in the way that is described here in these verses. And in closing, we pray for anyone here in our midst this morning, and you know who that would be, anyone who does not know you as Father and does not know your Son Jesus as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit do His work of conviction, enlightenment, to grant understanding of what it means to know and love Christ and follow him. And may this be the day that that man or woman or young person would come to know Jesus Christ and come to receive his forgiveness and his promise of eternal life. Father, thank you for our time together this morning to gather around the Lord's table and remember what he has done for us and then to hear from your word what your expectation is of us as your people. Seal these truths to our hearts and minds for the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.